Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October 23rd, 2013. It is a Wednesday, and I am welcoming back today in just a minute uh, prior guest who a lot of you guys really, really dug the first time around, Evan Folds, who came on last time and talked about a whole lot of cool stuff, and... Uh, this time he's coming back to kind of dig into just one of them, in this case hydroponics. We're going to talk about hydro and what you can do with it other than growing pot in the closet. Uh, it's actually a pretty awesome science, and Evan is just, he will blow you away with the knowledge he'll share today. This is one of the episodes where, like, I'm going to have to go listen to it a couple times to take in everything that he said and how it actually you know, affects what I might do for it if I do something with hydroponics, or at least my knowledge of hydroponics so I can help others that want to do it. Um, Again, I mean, get ready for like a college level of experience in understanding hydroponics today. Before I do that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready Made Resources. The sponsor that does what it says and says what it does. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go, point click buy on their website, ship to your door with lightning fast service and great pricing and great customer service as well. Ready made resources is a company that has been supporting the work we do here at the survival podcast for a very long time. And they really do have everything you could ever want for your prepping needs. Uh, from solar and wind to long-term food storage to stuff for gardening to guns and gear and everything you can think of in between. Ready-Made Resources is your source. Check them out today at readymaderesources.com. If you're going to stock up on uh, on long-term storage food, uh, check the Member Support Brigade as well where how, how to learn how you can get free silver with your order if you're a member of the Support Brigade. Uh, speaking of precious metal, how about a sponsor that provides the other precious metal? BulkAmmo.com. If you're looking for copper jacketed lead in large quantities at great pricing, BulkAmmo.com is your source. Why would you want large quantities? Well, you might have something called an ammo shortage that happens from time to time. That might be it. But the other is the triangle of gun operator efficiency, as I call it. The gun, the operator, that's you and your training, and the ammo. When any one of those three are missing, you do not have an effective gun operator. So one thing we can control very easily is our ammunition supply. You need ammo to train with, you need ammo to put food on the table, and you need ammo to protect yourself should God, you know, God willing, it, it never happens. But if it does happen, you need it to be able to do that. And you got to have the training. You got to have the training. And you can't train really effectively unless you're putting rounds down range once in a while. So check out bulkammo.com and stock up before the next ammo shortage. And uh, they also have a special deal for members, so check your benefits section before you order. On that note, when, when uh, Evan comes on in just a bit, he's going to mention that uh, anybody can get a discount. What we've done is we've worked out a deal um, on his websites that you'll hear about in just a minute that, yes, uh, MSB members, you get a discount on Evan's sites like forever, 10% off everything. For the next two weeks, if you call an order in, they'll give a discount to anybody that even mentions the Survival Podcast. After those two weeks, you will need the discount code either on checkout or when you call in, they'll ask you for it. So uh, I'm actually extending an MSB uh, discount to uh, anybody that wants it for the next two weeks if you're going to buy from Evan uh, and Progress Earth or Progressive Gardens. Uh, but the discount is permanent for MSB members, which is a great reason to join the MSB and help support the show. 
and the work that we do uh, at about 18.3 cents an episode, military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters. All of you guys qualify for a discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line before, not after you join at jacketthesurvivalpodcast.com. A couple sentences about who you are and what you're doing or what you did if you're prior service, and I'll respond back with that discount code for you. If you've been considering the MSB, there's a lot of new things being added to it. First crack at our workshops goes to MSB members. We can review videos that are going out for MSB members only, uh, and we're looking, Joe and I are always brainstorming, what can we do next to, uh, to increase the value of the MSB, and we'll keep trying to do that for you. Real quick, I want to go into the uh, year 1233. Uh, the only thing of notes here is uh, Pope Gregory the Ninth uh, in uh, 1233 forbids Jews to employ Christian servants. So if you were a Jew, the Pope said you're not allowed to uh, to hire a Christian. Now, that seems to make a lot of sense. Uh, <laughs> That's what a pope should be worried about. Anyway, um, I did miss yesterday's um, segment, and uh, we should say that uh, you know yesterday on twelve thirty two, Pope Gregory was actually driven from revo- Rome uh, by revolt. So uh, so after he got driven away by revolt, he had time to to, to then next year say the Jews can't uh, hire Christians to work for them. Um, Anthony. Patron saint of lost items was canonized, so that was going on there. Um, there's an interesting little note here, though, that I think just puts things in perspective that, you know, we're not as smart as we think we are, or the people in the past weren't as foolish or as lacking in technology as we think they were. Um, in Asia, the Jer- Jerkin Jin dynasty in China is uh, it defends itself uh, in, in Kafang against the Mongol invaders successfully for the time being anyway, and that involved the use of rockets. 1232, rockets being used in Asia in warfare. That's not something we generally think of. So there's a little combined history segment for you, and uh, we're ready to get into the uh, main subject of today's show. And with that, hey, Evan, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Well, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely, man. You were a huge hit with the audience last time, and we covered like a variety of things. We kind of went over a lot of the different things that uh, that you have experience with and that you're helping people do through your company. Um, and one that we kind of just briefly touched on was uh, hydroponics. And uh, I realized after that episode that, one, people liked you, wanted you back, and, two, it might make sense to take one subject and go deep into it. Yeah. And I realized that like hydroponics is something we never really on the survival podcast went deeply into. We've always kind of talked about aquaponics, which in a lot of ways is more complicated to do. And and I think hydro is something that's underutilized in, in, in the country today. So with that in mind, can we just start out exactly, you know, what is hydroponics? Because yeah. I think a lot of people think like it's a way that dudes grow pot in their closet. Yeah, well, incidentally, it is. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't make the news when you're growing tomatoes, you know. Um, sure. So... You know, hydroponics is a concept of growing plants without soil. That's about as simple as you can make it. The water, uh, the, the word literally means working water. Um, so it, it's, you know, it, you can make anything complicated, but on, on the bare bones of this, it's, it's really simple. It's basically really smart people over time have determined the requirements of what plants need to grow. And chemistry has caught up to the point where we can buffer some of the metals that aren't normally available in water 
to an extent where you've got a complete nutrient, everything the plant needs to grow is in one bottle. And it's as simple as adding the recommended amount to get a parts per million within the range of the plant you're growing. pH balancing that water, no different than you would a, you know, fish for fish in an aquarium. Uh, and then by the book, you would just change your reservoir out every couple of weeks um, to, to maintain the system. So, you know, it's, it's basically the idea of knowledgeably approaching a plant with what it's required to grow with. And in that regard, it's a lot more efficient. You're using a lot less material, and you're also saving up to a 20th of the water, uh, depending on the technique that you're using. So it's some, a way of significantly saving resources towards, towards that end of uh, being self-sufficient. Now, can you talk about some of the ways that it's actually a lot easier to do than aquaponics? Because aquaponics has been very, very effectively marketed to society and especially the preparedness community because, of course, we get we get vegetation, but we also get fish. But, you know, I think that a lot of people have this concept. And, I mean, I'm not putting it down. I'm still trying to figure out exactly how we'll implement it here because I want it for demonstration purposes and nothing else in our school. But um, it's not like – is really as easy as I think it's made out to be by people that, you know, frankly sell you the systems to do it with because there's a lot of things that have to be kept in balance. And there's since there's two elements in the system, there's more that can go out of balance. And, and that's it's not that you don't have to pay attention in hydro, but it's not anywhere near as, uh, as complex, I guess, with the potential for failure, right? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I think a lot of the failure comes from the size of the system, personally. Um, when you have a really small aquaponic system that you're making out of, let's say, 18-gallon Rubbermaids, you know, because you have fluctuation in the system until it's stable, the fluctuations are extremely more pronounced in a smaller volume of water and growing media. Um, versus if you have a larger system, it's just bufferable. You know, there's not as much room for error. Um, so I, I, would, I would make that point. Um, to your point of complication initially, I would say that, there is because you have to get the system to, to support itself. I mean, the, the essence of aquaponics, I think, is the end of food, personally, because you're producing, you know, edible foodstuff, fish in this case, out of and plants, out of fish waste. Uh, the only input that you have is the fish food itself. So once you get that system regulated, it pretty much maintains itself. You know, you're not really adding anything but the fish food to keep them alive. Uh, because you're balancing the amount of water, uh, loosely the number of fish with the volume of grow bed. You know, you want at least a gallon of water to a gallon of grow bed. It's kind of a, some say two to one. Um, but generally speaking, once that system is regulated, it's then not a monitoring situation that you have to tinker with. Um, so you can kind of take both sides of the argument. You know, initially, yeah, it's more complicated because there's more components involved. But long term, you're going to mitigate a lot of the inputs and then the regulation that you would have to attain through a hydroponic approach. So you know, I would kind of come down on both sides of that. Okay, and that makes sense. I think I agree with you a lot on the size of systems. And the the, the caveat there then becomes like, so putting in a, uh, an aquaponics system that's using 5,000 gallons of water mm. is rather expensive. So Correct. does that mean that running small-scale hydro is maybe easier than running small-scale aquaponics? I would agree with that. I would agree with that. I've tried to build a, a – I have built an aquaponic system. I grew some basil with some goldfish, uh, which is the other thing you have to factor in. When you have a small volume of water, you can't really grow catfish, you know, or sure. tilapia or something that's edible. So, you know, you have to factor that in. If you're just using it for the waste, then you can say the cost-benefit of using a hydronutrient versus keeping your fish alive is pretty much negligible almost. Especially I mean, I, when if your goldfish die, you're out like, you know, nine cents for coffee. Yeah, you're screwed, right? right. So, so in that respect, I would say it's kind of a wash, and maybe you're doing it because of the intrigue of it and 
not from a you know commercial standpoint. Um, but if you can mature the aquaponic system, which, like you said, takes a level of investment, arguably maybe more investment than setting up a hydro system. Uh, you're mitigating the long-term cost, but you got to work with the payback. So you just have to think through the, the scale of that. Very cool. And, and to me, though, that says that when you look at that, for a lot of folks that maybe want to do small-scale production, because I think, like, when I think about hydro, I think, man, all these people that live in apartment complexes um, that ask me, like, how do I grow f- my own food when I'm stuck in an apartment? Like, that's a perfect thing for so um, that small-scale producer, and, like, to get started, too, like, to learn how to do it, right. it. It's a lot easier to start with a small system economically until you figure out what works, and then you can expand. Yeah, that's absolutely a fair statement. I mean, hydroponics, the hard part's done for you. You know, we've determined you can even take a tissue analysis of the crop that you're growing and work with a, a formulator to actually make a plant-specific nutrient. And that's the way you would want to get. I'm working with a guy today in my store, and he's setting up a greenhouse. I think it's a 40 by 15. And he's already got this hydroponic system in place, and we're working through the cost-benefit of the starter plugs and the nutrient and all these kinds of things. And it's really not that much. I mean, it costs like six cents a plug and like six cents a gallon to, on the, uh, the cost. And that's roughly a retail cost. I'd say six to ten cents, depending on what you're buying. So the actual upfront per plant is a lot less than it would be if you're buying the fish and the tanks and, you know, the, the plumbing and all the mechanisms. So I would agree with your assessment there. Get your feet wet with the hydro. The only thing you're doing with aquaponics is really dovetailing what we talked about last time, introducing the compost tea, the organisms deliberately, which we can talk about it in more depth, but significantly decreases the time that you need to measure the ammonia uh, cycling, which is really the, the key to aquaponics. You want to make sure the bacteria convert the ammonia into a nitrate. And the rate at which they do that is defined by the amount of ammonia in the system. So the more mature biologically you are, the more stable the system is. And that's basically, in a nutshell, what aquaponics is, is growing microbes to a concentration that can handle the waste stream that you're producing. Sure, sure, gotcha. So uh, back to hydro then, like, what is the history of this? Where did it come from? Because, like, you do hear a lot about the guys growing pot with it. And, uh, frankly, checking into some forums, there's a lot of guys today that are doing hydro for things other than growing marijuana in a closet that seem to actually be pretty grateful that those guys doing that have yeah. actually done a lot of innovating. I mean, I'm I'm the guy that says, I don't think you should smoke pot, but I don't think we need a law against it. Mm-hmm. So I'm not really into what they're doing, but it does seem like those guys have innovated a lot. So, But that probably wasn't the first guy to ever do this hydroponically. There's probably another reason for it, right? Yeah, no, that's spot on. It, it is kind of ironic, you know, they, that that group of people have pushed the envelope in terms of making the technology available and the efficiency and, the, and a lot of the data, frankly. Um, so, you know, that's definitely real, but, you know, hydroponics, the history of it essentially is predates land plants, you know, if you think about it. It's phytoplankton, photosynthetic bacteria in the ocean. Um, that, you know, arguably the ocean spawned terrestrial life, and if you look at it from that perspective, it's been around forever. Um, the first, you know, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon was hydroponics. It was river water that they unconsciously had complete nutrition in running it through a system. You could do the same thing with your pond in the backyard. Just make some gullies if you're hot for your hydro plants and then run the pond water through the system and, you know, you pretty much got an aquaponic system. Um, but the original, I guess the defining of the term came from uh, Dr. William Garrick. I think it was 1920, somewhere in there. And he determined that the first nutrient solution that would uh, provide complete nutrition to a plant. And he sensationalized it. He was doing it to a point where he had 40-foot tomato plants. He had this picture in the paper where he was up on a ladder, and it was this revolutionary means of growing that was going to change the world. And it even got turned into a marketable thing where 
there was actually people going door to door selling these you know sensationalized approach. The problem was back in the 20s we didn't have plastics and things that you could use reliably that were accessible that didn't create heavy metal issues and it pretty much fell on its face commercially until the 70s um, when plastic was introduced and that really changed the accessibility of it. But the government did a lot of research coming up through the 40s and 50s specifically for the wars that were overseas. Um, really in the 60s, they, I think it was the first government-sanctioned com- commercial operation in Iwo Jima, and they did it for the wars, and they grew all the lettuce the troops need, need, uh, needed, and it was a very efficient way of doing it. And, you know, stepped that up to the 70s, that's when it kind of became commercialized. And the beginning of the 70s was kind of when the first hydroponic nutrient came out that you could buy in a store. And, you know, it's come a long way since then, but the same principles apply. You know, it's just become more efficient. Absolutely. So, like, for the person that says, like, I'd like to give this a shot, yeah, right, and then just goes, there's all these different ways and things. Like, how do, how do you actually do this? I mean, I know it's nutrient and water, and the water moves, and the plant grows in the water. Right. Uh, that's the most basic form. But, like, so this person is saying, like, okay, well, how do I how do I assemble this? How do I put this together? What, what do they have to do? Well, you know, the, the easiest way to do it is to buy a hydroponic system. For people that are, and I, I imagine there's, many of them in, in the group here, is to do it yourself. It's, it's really no different than setting up an aquarium. Uh, the, the most accessible technique is called water culture, and it basically means that the roots are going to grow directly into the nutrient solution without being moved around. You're not going to have a drip system or a flood and drain or some mechanism where the water goes away and then it's pumped back. Um, there are benefits to, to letting the water go away and come back, primarily through the amount of oxygen that you can get to the roots, which is going to be higher in air than it would be in water itself. You can just get more oxygen from the air than you can dissolved oxygen. That's actually a metric of of temperature as well. So if you had a high temperature scenario and you had a water culture system where the roots are growing into the reservoir, you have to factor in, you know, the amount of dissolved oxygen you can attain is a metric of the heat. The higher the temperature, the less oxygen you can dissolve. So the reason people get root disease in hydroponics typically is because they have roots submerged the temperature is too high to allow the oxygen into the system that needs uh, the plant is requires, and that's how the disease attacks. So it's not contamination most of the time. It's just a metric of dissolved oxygen. So to simplify it, what you're looking at to build your own hydroponic system is a 5-gallon bucket or, or 18-gallon Rubbermaid, some net pots, and then just a simple aeration mechanism, which is an air pump, some tubing to communicate to an air stone. And the airstone does nothing but break the bubbles up, increases the surface area of the, of the bubbles, which further dissolves more oxygen. Um, you can actually enhance that with vortexing, as we touched on in the last show. Um, but that's really brass tacks. I mean, I, I quoted out someone, this girl that was doing her senior project, and it was about $75. Assuming you're using the Rubbermaid, you're bringing the Rubbermaid to the table, everything else costs you about 75 bucks. Well, that's great, because, I mean, I'm looking at some systems that are like, Turnkey systems on your site. You got one called Flow and Grow, mm-hmm. and that's like a six hundred dollars system. But it is. frankly, it looks pretty friggin' cool. It is cool, and there's definitely a cool factor with a lot of this stuff. And that that system, Flow and Grow, is a, a flood and drain system, and it, it's kind of neat because it has. If you're looking at the image, it's got a tank that's your reservoir, yep. and it's got a controller um, bucket that basically maintains the water level in the other buckets. So you got a float valve on your controller that doses to your controlling mechanism that holds the water level, and in that system it's actually on a timer, so it floods and drains on a timing mechanism. So you know you get that benefit of the water going away, more oxygen to the roots. Um, but and it, you know I'm, I'm a I preferen- preferentially I like to use trays 
where you have, just imagine like a 3x3 or 4x4, they make 4x8 trays, and you can just put the container, and it literally could be containers of soil to make the point. It's just an automatic watering system. It basically has a pump mechanism that, let's say, it comes on four to six times a day with a hydroponic media. The water drips to the plant. What's not used falls into the tray and returns back to the reservoir, and it just recycles the water. Um, so I, I like the tray mechanism with drip or flood personally, um, but you know, water culture is another technique. Nutrient film technique is another technique. Um, they're all a different way to the same place, to be honest with you. So you're using a lot of words that I get, and so maybe I'm not sure I want to make sure I get. So let's look sure. at it this way. So the first system you've described with like the five-gallon bucket and the, and the aerator, and you're just adding your nutrient, and you're putting your, your plants in basically a, a mesh a basket and right. floating them. That's like doing deep water aquaponics, except there's no fish. Yep. And the second system sure. is like where I'm sitting on my grow beds and I'm running a siphon and I'm doing flood and drain and aquaponics. I'm just not including fish. Well, you, you wouldn't need to siphon as, as, as you would a pump that delivers. Okay, because I'm just pumping it and then it drains. and it, it So it's not a siphon. It just fills it up and stops. It knows how much to put in. Yeah, I mean, a timer is going to turn a pump on for, let's say, you know, cheap timers are 15-minute increment timers. So okay. you could turn it on for 15 minutes, it would flood the growing media, and then it would be off for two to four hours. And, uh-huh. then, and, and the reason that you're doing that, again, is more oxygen to the roots. And the idea of the growing media becomes important. Like in, in water culture, where you've got the, the net pot where it's just growing into the water, it doesn't matter what it's planted in. It could be marbles if you wanted it to be, because the roots have – it's just holding the plant up, you know. But if, you, if you're flooding and draining or the water's going away for an extended period of time, you need to think about the water retention ability of the media. So something like rock wool or the grow rocks would work. Typically in aquaponics, to just take that comparison, the reason you siphon it and go back and forth is, is simply a matter of the scale at which you're doing it at um, and then also the need to keep the bacteria alive um, in the solution. So you need to continuously wet the solution. Um, so it's not that you couldn't do hydroponics with a siphon, but it would be overkill. You know, you just need to get a pump to move the water up and then let it drain back. So you need a very small pump to accomplish that. Now, what about your lighting? A lot of people want to do this indoors. Um, that might actually be a, a significant expense if you don't have, like, a perfect, you know, solar aspect to a window to do this in. Yeah, it, it's very rare, if ever, that I've seen someone accomplish a, you know, a hydroponic system in a window that wasn't growing something that was like lettuce or very – you know, low light requirements. It's, it's just really hard with half of the sky to work with to get at least six hours of direct light, which I would suggest is kind of a minimum to get a pepper to produce or a tomato to produce. And the more light you give it, the, the better rate of growth you're going to get. So that's obvious, also a metric of the expectation of the grower. But the lighting is important because, you know, to deal with it on a daily basis, you can buy grow lights at a big box store. The problem is, the lights themselves basically are ambient lights that we would normally buy to put in our ceiling. They just have a grow sleeve tent, a, a grow light sleeve on it that markets it in that way. Okay. And the way to distinguish what you want is photosynthesis is very specific in regards to the wavelengths required. So that the technology of indoor lighting is basically about the tech, how to mix the gases in the arc tubes so that they emit spectrums that are relevant to plants. The way that people typically measure efficiency in light is through lumens. Lumen is, which is a conversion of foot candles, um, that is to a human's eye, not to a plant's chlorophyll. So if you buy something from Lowe's, what you're probably going to get is a 5,000 Kelvin spectrum, which is uh, errs on the blue side of things. And it's not that it doesn't have relevant light, but the peaks in photosynthesis are 3,000 Kelvin and 6,500 Kelvin. 
So if you've got a 5,000 Kelvin light from Lowe's, like a fluorescent in this case, you're basically going right down the middle of the peaks that you want to be hitting. Um, so it's not irrelevant, but it's not going to give you the return that you really want. And you know, I guess you should flesh out the difference between fluorescence and HID lights. HID are typically like what you would see for a ball field or a billboard. You know, it's a metal halide or a high-pressure sodium. Metal halide tends to be more blue-oriented. High-pressure sodium is more red-oriented. So in indoor gardening, the name of the game is trying to replicate most efficiently what the plant would want in an outdoor scenario because it came from the outdoors. You can't, you know, a plant eats what it eats in a sense. So you typically want a blue light in the beginning and a red light in the end, metal halide to high-pressure sodium. Reason is, you know, in April you've got an 18-hour day and a bright blue sun. In the fall you've got a shorter day length which you would reduce the photo period uh, for maximum efficiency, and you would use more of a red light because it's coming through more of the atmosphere. It's skewed more red. So plants that have come to expect that outdoors can be enhanced in regards to the production you get indoors. Not something that you have to dial in, like, to the gills, but it does make a difference if you're thinking about those things in your garden. So with an HID light, you know, the difference, it's it's a good question, and T5 lighting, if people are familiar with fluorescence, you have T12 lights, which are like the old-school 40-watt tubes you see in a shop, you know, cheap lamps. You have T8 lights, which are compact fluorescence, and you have T5 lights. Um, the T5, put it in perspective of efficiency, you'd need 1,600 watts. It, well, first off, the T number is a measure of the diameter of the tube. So the, okay. more pr- the more pressure you get the gas under, the more light you get per watt. Okay. So to compare, to break that down... You, a T12 light, you would need 1,600 watts. A T8, you would need compact fluorescent, you would need 800 watts. And with a T5, you would need 400 watts to get the same amount of output. So the te- T5 technology, if you don't already have fluorescence, you really don't want to buy compact fluorescence or, you know, the old T12s. You want to get the T5. And those actually rival the output of the HIDs. And one step further, just so that we can have the complete picture, and you may have a follow-up, may not, but... Six inches from a T5 light and two feet from an HID light, you're getting the same output. The, the trick is the fluorescent, you can't light up a ball field with fluorescent light. So the, so the intensity of the light is not there. So the further you get away from the fluorescent, the faster you lose the light. And so what that means functionally is that the biggest fluorescent systems, T5 systems that I see, are, are about two by four. So you're really thinking about growing your garden underneath the fixture itself. You're limited on the amount of space that you can cover without buying additional fixtures, okay. which then prices out the T5. So the takeaway is if you're bigger than a 2x4, I'd say 3x3 three three area, you really want to think about the HID light, which will allow you to raise it up and, and it will penetrate and cover an area. Uh, and you can even get light movers and all kinds of fancy stuff. But that's, that's kind of a quick you know, synopsis of how to go about choosing your light. And, and I should also throw in you want at least 20 watts a square foot of the T5 or HID light to get production, and really no more than 60 watts a square foot. Beyond 60, you just have more light coming in than there is carbon dioxide in the air to photosynthesize with, and you're just wasting electricity. Gotcha, because there's got to be a lot of efficiency variables in here. People are trying to do this and, and, and not spend more money than they would buying food from, you know, a, a beyond organic farm. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, I, to that point, you know, I'll, I'll – to be honest, I don't know, and I haven't done this down to the to the nickel, but I, I don't know that growing a garden indoors on the scale that a homeowner would do with the lighting costs, which, you know, you can do a conversion on your power bill. They charge you per kilowatt hour, and you just multiply that by 1,000 to get the watts, however many days, hours a day you're running it, and how many days a month, and it'll give you a dollar amount. And on my power bill, 
about maybe $10 a month for a 400-watt light, which would be primary for, uh, I'd say, a minimum of a 4x4 area. uh, Sorry, a maximum of a 4x4 area. So, you know, you have to work all that through with what you're growing and what value you place on growing your own. Um, Sure. But I don't know that it's necessarily right now, and it's quickly getting to be that way. I don't know that it's cost-effective to grow that garden outside of the medicinal quality of the plant that you're growing, um, penny for penny, on what you buy from the supermarket. Sure. Um, I, I think another thing to look at, though, is like how can we stack functions because that's like a permaculture principle. So it's one thing that I'm running all that lighting. Um, if I shove it out in my garage in the back because I can and, and I just want it out of the way, that's one thing. If I make this system look really cool and something I, I'm happy to have in my home – and I put it in my home, and that light is now replacing light that I would otherwise it's, – it's obviously more intense light yep. and more expensive light to produce. But if I'm not turning on other lights, there's an offset there. It's not 100%, but it's a partial offset. So to me, I've always looked at maybe doing one of these and trying to figure out how to make it look like something I would want in my house anyway. Yeah. So that that light is being put to other use like so I can see and not stub my toe. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one way to think about it. Typically, what you would do, though, is you would contain the garden. And think about okay. – we, we have these grow tents available, and they're fantastic. They, you can buy a 2x4, 4x4, 4x8, you know, as big as a bedroom if you wanted to. But the idea, just to kind of paint a picture, if you've got a bedroom that's 10x10 10 10, and you've got a 2x4 garden in the corner of your room, right. if you have it open to the room, it's still going to grow. But two sides of that garden are losing light, and sure. it's not reflecting back to the plants. So that's something to consider. You could always put up like some, you know, like think science project board or something just to reflect it back. But the other consideration is if typically what you want to do is contain the system so that the heat builds up so that you can get ventilation fans, no different than, you know, a bathroom fan. You know, when, when you turn the bathroom fan on, it removes air from that room, which means air has to replace it by atmospheric pressure. You can't make a vacuum in that room. You know, the fan wouldn't work. So if you remove air, air has to come under the door in the bathroom. You know, if you put a towel under the door and open the window, it's coming in through the window, but it's coming from somewhere. So... The way you cool a grow room, because when you, especially with HIDs and even fluorescence in tight quarters, if you're removing 90-degree air with the exhaust fan and 70-degree air from your house is what's replacing it, it's only a matter of how much air you have to move to keep the temperature that what you want, let's say 78. So you could put that fan on a thermostat, put it at 80, and every time the temperature hit 80, the exhaust fan would remove hot air and the cooler air would come in and you know, it would regulate itself, which also refreshes the CO2 in the air and controls the humidity at the same time. So... The point that I fleshed all that out for is that if you had that room and you had a two-by-four garden in the corner, the heat is not going to build up, you're not going to get the light reflection, and you're not going to have the control over the environment that you want. So wow. what, I would, what I would suggest is that rather than thinking of it for ambient light, which, you know, is a possibility, but I would think of it more as using heat. You know, you could dump that heat in the winter into your house. You know? That's and, interesting. That's yeah, right. so, so I think that that would probably be the more functional offset. Um, and using the heat. Um, it, I even got people that divert it through a Y, and they just, you know, when, when it gets hot, they dump the air outside or in their crawl space, and when it's not hot and they want to use the heat, they dump it into the, to the house. You know? That's interesting because I was just going to say that. You'd want to dump it outside when it's, when it's the summertime. Right. Yep. But you're probably doing your most intensive growing in winter when hydro excels for being able to grow inside when you can't grow as well outside. Yep, bingo. So that, that makes a lot of sense as well. Those are some interesting reasons people would want to do hydroponics. What are some other reasons that people want to do hydroponics other than hiding pot plants in a, in a yeah. closet, right? Like yeah. when you get customers and they come to you and they say, I want to set up a system, 
and I'm not thinking so much because I know you sell systems right up to commercial size, but the home producer size. What are what are their main driving reasons for doing hydro? Uh, knowing what they're eating, you know, I would say is a main reason. Um, a main we get a lot of guys that come in that like to tinker with things, you know, and that's one of the biggest draws to this is that when you're cr- creating an environment and you're considering, I mean, to give me an idea, you can you can get, the technology is there that you can set, I could set up a grow room in Africa and run it through a computer, automated, you know, because because you basically have dosing mechanisms for the nutrients, you have environmental sensors that tell you the temperature and the humidity, you can even incorporate enhancing the level of CO2 in a contained environment, which is another reason to contain it, um, in in that, you know, there's 400 parts per million of CO2 in the air, a plant can utilize up to 1,600 parts per million. So if you four times the carbon in the air that the plant has to use for photosynthesis, you can grow up to 100 watts a square foot, and you can literally almost watch the plant grow. Um, so the idea of really dialing in those metrics and making it all work together is, is something that people really get a kick out of. Um, and that's, I would say, more of a hobby end to it. You know, you're not going to do all of those mechanisms on a small scale and be cost-productive growing peppers, you know. But, sure. Um, but that technology is there. So a lot of the what, what if we grow something that we normally wouldn't be able to grow, though, that's an expensive thing to import? Like, um, let's say that I was a, a local because like now there's a lot of these micro breweries and micro meaderies that make mead, which is like a honey wine. Right. And a lot of states have like said like you don't you, there's like I don't even know what they call them now, but it's like it's like sub micro. It's like really inexpensive to get into that business as long as you only sell within your own state. Mm-hmm. But they say things like X percent of your ingredients must come with you know like if I'm doing this in Texas and right. I want to do a micro meadery, then you know, X percent to be on this little thing must come from within the state of Texas. I can't sell out of the state of Texas, and I can only produce so much. Yeah. If I wanted to, like, really be badass with that, right, and this might be pushing the envelope a little bit, but, you know, I could take something like Madagascar vanilla, which is an orchid, right. and say I want to do, like, a mead with blackberry and vanilla, which the blackberry is easy to get in Texas, but the vanilla not so much. Yeah, yeah. But then I could grow, like, this really high-quality Madagascar vanilla orchid in Texas, and I have something that I can market in that micro market. That like, who the hell's competing with me now? Yeah, no, I mean that's that's a perfect identification of a niche market. Um, you know, incidentally, an orchid is hydroponics. You know, it's an epiphyte, so yeah. it doesn't grow in in soil anyway. Um, Maybe I'm not pushing the envelope as far as I thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, step your game up here, Jack. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think you've hit. I've I've worked with growers. You know, a perfect example is the the uh, hops, you know, the, the, for brewing beer. There's so many really? microbrewers. Yeah, so many, so many microbrewers out there that they've kind of flooded the market on the conventional availability. So it has now officially become cost-effective to do that hydroponics. And I'm aware of a couple of operations that are doing that on a on a semi-small scale. They're doing hops. Markets. Yeah. With hydro. Really? Yeah. You see that? I I would. We're actually playing with some microclimate creation and permaculture design here on my property and thinking maybe once we get this design done and implemented, maybe I can create this cool, moist environment for, for hops. Yep. But, I mean, my one question there would be, like, it's a pretty big vine. So how do they how do, they do that? I mean, are they like in a warehouse or? Yeah, yeah, warehouses and, you know, greenhouses are ideal. Um, yeah. But I, I'm um, basically, you know, that I know of a couple of people that are doing that. Um and, you know, I, don't, I haven't connected with them exactly on the cost-effectiveness of it. But I also have some people that are doing coffee um, indoors, and they're doing oh, yeah. See, they're I think doing we're, it. 
yeah. for the brewing industry, that's a slamming thing because it'd be easier um, than 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 hops and porters and stouts. That's a big thing now with the with the industry and like Texas grown coffee, right? Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's absolutely it. And, you know, I, I had the idea, there's a guy that brews beer, he's a bartender uh, down down the street from us, and I was having a beer after work and talking to him about it, and he, and he found out what I was doing, and we came up with this idea, which somebody needs to run with, of like a, a, a truly local beer, you know? Like, we brewed this beer from ingredients in your, your town, or whatever it might be, you know? Yeah. And, I mean, you'd have to do it on a certain scale and figure it all out, but, you know, that idea of creating that locality exactly and i wasn't aware of the meat industry the micro meat that kind of thing but if if there's examples like that there is no more more efficient way to produce plants than hydroponics once you have the infrastructure in place well what i'm getting at when i when i start looking into these niches is like so why have the pot growers been the innovators and it's to just to just be completely blunt and honest one they have to but more importantly their their crop is profitable and when you have profits you start seeking to expand them and eke them out and make them bigger. And now with the medical marijuana, it's like now they can do it openly in some areas anyway. Yeah. So by growing something like, so how do you compete with a pepper? Where in, in this state, you know, as long as I give it sun and water and decent soil, I have these plants that are five feet tall and peppers falling off when it rains, they're breaking branches and self-pruning. You don't, but like, Coffee is a high dollar crop. Even low end coffee is pretty high dollar, but premium coffee is high dollar. Yeah. Uh, things like spices are high dollar. Hops, um, premium hops are high dollar. Hops yep. are a huge heart of a beer. Um, so things like that, just like whatever you could think of that's really a high dollar crop, seems to make more sense to me if you're trying to carve a niche out with this than lettuce and spinach and, you know. What have you? Where breweries, I think the hard part with them would be the grain production. The grain has to be produced in mass. Yeah, everything I mean, else you could, especially adjuncts. Yeah, I mean it's kind of like growing corn in hydro. You know, it's such a commodity, and the amount of actual corn you get out of the resources you use just doesn't make sense. You know, so you you have to take you know that kind of approach with you know anything that you're going to grow on that scale. But I w- I would say it's it's really a matter of scale and then of perceived value. You know, I mean. The one thing that our food system doesn't factor in, which is extremely tragic given the fact that food is what nourishes us, is how good is it for you, you know? And, you know, we do – one other idea to dovetail what you were saying is, you know, high-volume, uh, low-turnover crops, meaning, you know, microgreens, things that you can grow in a week. And yeah, maybe they're inexpensive, but they're fast. And you they're, that's right. You just knock them out. We, we grow a lot of wheatgrass at our retail store. We do it for one health food store up the road. And, you know, I just took them four flats when I went and got lunch just now. Um, so they go to four, four to six flats a day. Wow. And we do a really good business to one little health food store in our 100,000-person town. So things like now that look, make complete now, sense. Now, look, now you're going a totally different way, right? So wheatgrass is cheap to grow. There's no yeah. doubt about it. There's big commercial operations that can do it. But – the freshness that you're providing them and the like the, the the ability to hit a moving target with their inventory requirements yeah who the hell can compete with that from you know three states away and I'll give you a perfect exactly and I'll give you you know what I would say is that's the life force you know and this is something that's really important in terms of the spirit of how we approach things is that really the, the qualitative value of food is not measured whatsoever in regards to the food system. So, you know, you can get people that grow wheatgrass in huge amounts, they juice it, they freeze it, they send it to the freezer at your grocery store, but literally within 15 minutes of juicing, 
it begins to break down in its nutritional quality. And the enzyme content is measurable. But in the wheatgrass world, just to camp on that for a sec, is they call it the grass juice factor. And the idea is that there is a qualitative therapeutic benefit to wheatgrass. If you go to Hippocrates Institute, they're not feeding you, you know, wheatgrass that, that was juiced a week ago. They're, they're taking it from the living root, they're juicing it, and you're ingesting it directly within that 15-minute period. Sure. And you're not heating it up, you're not denaturing that life force that, unfortunately, we can't stick a meter in it and measure it. But you can, I've literally, and I don't mean to overstate things because I'm very careful about that, I've got customers that come into Progressive Gardens that have healed themselves from our wheatgrass of cancer. Um, so it's it's a very literal therapeutic benefit that you get that you can't get from a tablet of something that's dried and packaged and shelved in this or market. something that is alive but it's in a clamshell and it sits on the shelf for a week and then you bring it home and you use a pinch of it yeah. until until you like okay now it doesn't look good anymore and you throw it away and buy another one yeah it's cool but and it's better than than you know an apple that's a year old and, you know from the grocery store you know which is literally the case um but we're so disconnected from our food we don't even really know how far away we are from it you know so that idea of literally being able to to harvest something and ingest it is is definitely should be calculated into the roi of what you're doing but how do you do that is is you know a personal question i would imagine now if we can move a little bit of a different way for a second like one of the big things that people that do aquaponics say as well the inputs are reduced and i don't have to buy fertilizer but I'm looking up fertilizer on your site, and I'm seeing stuff, you know, like a quart of it for 26 bucks, and I'm imagining a, a significant size system. I'm not going to dump that quart in there. Uh-huh. It's it's probably used in small amounts because it's probably highly concentrated. So, you know, really what is, like, a, a decent-sized system, like you were talking about two-by-fours or something like that, like how much fertilizer are you actually using, um, uh, you know, kind of weekly, monthly, et cetera? How, how big of an input situation are you really in? Yeah, it's a good question. I'll try to answer it. You basically the concentrates you're looking at anywhere from a teaspoon to a tablespoon per gallon, depending okay. on the crop that you're growing. And to put that into a way of understanding, you know, think about table salt. Table salt is sodium chloride. If you put it in water, it dissolves into a sodium and a chlorine ion. Plants eat the ions. So what a hydroponic nutrient is is with knowledge of what ratio of elements we need of the primary essential elements. Again, the hard part is done for you, the, the chemistry there and the buffering and all that. All you're worried about is the amount of the salts to parts of salts per million of water. That's where the parts per million number comes from, which is essentially a conversion of EC, if people are aware of that, which is electrical conductivity. One EC is 700 parts per million. It can also be 500, but that's kind of beside the point. But the, the idea is it's a different way to the same place, just like the U.S. and the metric system in weights. So if, if you put numbers on something to give you a kind of way to think about this in terms of nutrient usage, a lettuce plant would be about six, 800 parts per million at the most. A tomato would be anywhere from 1,500 to 3,500 parts per million. So you typically wouldn't want to grow a head of lettuce and a tomato in the same system because you'd have to grow it to the lettuce concentration, and then you'd be sacrificing the production you should get out of your tomato. So that's not to say that you need to take a different system for every crop you're growing, but think about herbs, greens, things that don't produce a fruit and kind of the lower rung, um, you know, up to 1,000 parts per million, let's say. From 1,000 to 2,000 is, you know, all of your fruit-bearing plants, peppers, squash, watermelon, you name it. And then tomatoes are kind of in a class by themselves. They'll kind of, they're like a goat. They'll kind of eat what you feed them, you know. So if you think about it, you know, separating the systems into compartments like that, it'll help you have success from the beginning. So obviously if you're growing a tomato that's, you know, 
eating 3,500 parts per million versus a lettuce eating 600 parts per million, that's going to be a pretty big difference in the nutrient concentration that you're using. It's also a metric of the amount of light and the amount of photosynthesis the plant can attain, which is going to use measurably more if you've got a higher light level. And then the other factor would be, by the book, when you set up a hydro system, what you do is you switch your reservoir. You dump your reservoir out and you refresh it every two weeks. It's a bit like changing your oil every 3,000 miles. You know, you don't have to do it, um, and arguably maybe shouldn't with oil because I'm aware of some studies that show it goes well beyond that. But the idea being, really the reason that you do that is because the nutrient that you buy is not plant-specific. It doesn't need to be. You don't get to plant specificity in the nutrient until you get the tissue analysis and you're growing the same crop on a scale and you can justify the order to formulate it for you. Sure, I'm, I'm so, specializing in those those orchids, and now I'm going to specifically exactly. dial that in to give that thing exactly what's going to make it exceptional. That, that's exactly right, and I think it'll be clear uh, why that is important once you can kind of full see the fullness of this picture. But when you have... That dumping it out, the reason you're doing it is two reasons. One is plants use more water than nutrient when they're using a nutrient solution. And that's basically all. You're not losing evaporation if you've got the system set up right. It's the plant transpiring water and losing using it. So the, if you start with 20 gallons, that five gallons you got left is more concentrated than what you started with. So if you're just topping off with a full-strength solution, you know, wh- what is the concentration? You know, you don't know where you're at. And so you can get nutrient meters that are actually – you know, 60, 70 bucks that are pretty inexpensive that kind of sell themselves once you get into this because you kind of want to know. And you can really push the plant to see where it burns the plant and then step off of it and get maximum production. But without a nutrient meter, you don't know where that concentration is. The main factor, though, is that let's say for the sake of the discussion, we're growing a tomato and the tomato wants 2% calcium in its nutrient solution. Let's say the nutrient you bought off the shelf that's not plant-specific has 1% calcium. Well, for that two-week period, or I'd say even a month if you're going to push it, that 1% calcium is enough for that tomato. But if you're just topping off with an innately deficient solution, over time it becomes more deficient. And so you can't factor that out of being an issue that you run into later on down the road if you're not switching your reservoir. So the takeaway from that is that you don't have – I've grown – plenty of crops just like adding quarter strength nutrient solution because I was lazy, you know, and it'll work. But if you really want to dial it in and you want to ensure that the maximum concentration is being delivered as you grow, then you'd switch the reservoir out. So if you're switching your reservoir out, obviously you're going to use a bit more nutrient, but use it on your lawn or something, you know I mean? It's I was just going to say when that comes, when, when I'm done with that, there's still a lot of value there and right. I can yeah. use that in my other systems. If, yeah, it's if, not... Exactly. Yeah, it's not not negligible. You just don't know what it is, and because gotcha. you're bringing 100% of the requirement of the nutrition, you better know what it is, you know, yeah. or else you can't factor that out of any issue you might have. Gotcha, gotcha. So you mentioned earlier the word compost tea came up. Do yep. you use compost tea in these systems? I think it's the most important place to use it. And wow. The reason for that is if you're not using some form of microbe and Almost more importantly in the hydroponic application is the plant food that is created. You know, if you take our recipe, the earth tonic that's being used in that recipe has over 90 elements in it. So, you know, why would Mother Nature make an element not needed in the garden, you know? And, and so when you're using a hydroponic nutrient, you're using a very refined, basically, path of least resistance. And it's better than miracle Grow, which has got like seven elements in it. But hydroponic nutrients have 17. That's what the plant has to have. What we want to be thinking about is what does the plant want? And that's where the compost tea comes in because it basically fills in the gaps. It you know prevents us from assuming we know what we're talking about. 
basically. Yeah, I just had that conversation with somebody that's been recommending the Metwaller method of, of growing plants and saying, you know, it has these 16 things that plants need, mm-hmm. and, and that's it. And I'm like, well, who made you God so that you knew everything a plant <laughs> needed? Thank you. Right, because we don't know. Like, we know that's all the things that a plant needs to grow well based on our definition of the word well relative to other plants. But we don't know what that plant needs to produce, you know, the most nutritionally dense you know, if I throw it in a refractometer and look at it, what are its bricks? Right. Um, and, and then what does what makes those up even? Because right. there's things that we – you were talking last time you were on about how, how little we know about soil. And every person I know that starts to learn about soil realizes how little we know. Yeah. We, we know even less about actually everything that a plant uses and what the actual effect is on our long-term health. Because yeah. there's been, like, no real research done into that all other than, like, good food produces good, healthy people. Yeah. But dialing into, like – if we change the amount of manganese available to this particular variety of pepper and the person eats that for 20 years versus one without it, what is uh, the impact? Tall order. <laughs> we have no freaking idea. Yeah. Maybe we'll, we'll never know. You know? But so, the plant knows what it wants, like you're saying. Yeah, it does. And you also have to consider, you know, plants make their own antifreezes and their own antibiotics and their own pest controls. And they're completely efficient at living you know it's but the human (laughs) human gets in a way you know what i mean that's basically what we talk about in soil growing soil it's the idea is it's not a human responsibility to grow a plant you know now in hydro we've taken that responsibility upon ourselves and ironically that can be one of the limitations if you'd ask me directly what what's a potential limitation of hydroponics i would say assuming that a plant only needs 17 elements in water to grow you know so as long as you got your wits about you and you kind of you know Assume that, and that's one of the things that aquaponics works on diligently if you set it up correctly as well. But unconsciously, you're getting a much broader and complex and more bioavailable form of nutrition than a human could ever invent. So sure. use, use your base nutrient as what you have to have, and then supplement that with natural products that provide the qualitative benefit that we have no clue about. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Like the, uh, the compost tea component is basically trusting nature. Exactly. The plant will take the other things that we can't figure out and say, I'll have a little of this, a little of that, and might want a little of this today and a little of that tomorrow. That's it. And, and you also have to think you know, a, a little bit further in the full picture is that you know, the number of elements is important, but there's a thing called isotopes. You know, there's different forms of the same element. And we, you, you know, it's a <laughs> common human approach. We whittle it down to calcium is calcium. But you know, there's multiple forms of calcium. There's six kinds of carbon found in nature. So what you get from like a seawater-based fertilizer is you're getting that innate complexity that really can't be engineered from a lab. You can't truly make ocean water in a lab. Uh, and then, you know, one step further would be there's a lot of elements that aren't even needed directly by plants that are needed by the soil or the growing media in order to make other elements available. Mm. So one of the things you find is that, you know, if you're pushing a plant, you know what burning a plant is? I mean, you've yeah. heard of that term before? Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a simple concept, and it's, it helps to understand how that works. And a minute ago, I was talking about sodium chloride and the parts of ions per million of water. That's the concentration of your nutrient solution. So what a plant does is it ensures that inside the root is, is higher ions than outside the root. Therefore, the water goes into the plant. That's osmosis, right? It goes from the lower to the higher concentration. That's how a plant uses water in transpiration. So when you reach a nutrient solution, let's take the lettuce plant we were talking about at 600 parts per million. Let's, let's say you bump it up to 800, 900, and you get some tip burn. What happened was you, you went beyond the threshold of that root's ability to maintain that osmotic gradient. 
So having more ions outside the root than inside the root, water leaves the plant. And the edges of the leaves are sacrificed, and all the moisture goes to the middle. That's how you burn a plant. So, you know, in, in that respect, if you ha- one of the things that we find typically when people are really pushing their plants, you know, if you have that nutrient meter, and you're at 600, man, plant's doing great, 800's doing great, bump it to 1,000, get burned. Well, then you know you want to step off and run it at 7, 800. So with, with that threshold, you know, factored in, you're basically working with a, a scenario that, you know, you can idealize the plant growth. And if you have other elements that aren't, don't have to be there, you know, boron and calcium are the common one. You know, you want one one-thousandth of boron relative to calcium for calcium to be available. So if you're not paying attention to boron, which a state extension service rarely tests for boron, you can throw, you can have blossom and rot on your tomatoes and throw the kitchen sink of calcium at it, and you're not even addressing your problem. You're adding more what you probably got too much of, and you lack the boron to make it available. So the idea is not to get in there and rip it all apart and figure all of this out. It's more to rely on the fact that this has already been done by Mother Nature and we don't need to reinvent the wheel and add it all in in a natural balance and the rest will take care of itself. So it's kind of ironically, even though it sounds technical, it's a lot simpler than, you know, trying to figure it all out. Yeah, definitely. So, like, the person that, like, says, okay, I want to try this, um, do you, I mean, building your own is great, but there's people like me that are like, I can do it, but damn it, I have so many things going on, like, do you have like an entry level system that you think would be a good entry level system where the person might do more later and it would be a good idea to start there because it's easy to add on to or you know it's not like okay that's no longer valid? Yeah, the, I, I like the the water farm systems by General Hydroponics. They're uh, it's a drip system. It works through an air mechanism, uh, airlift mechanism. Um, it's it's you know relatively cheap. It comes with the nutrient, the pH kit, the growing media, everything. I, I would think about growing a single plant in it. You know, you're not going to grow six heads of lettuce in this thing. It's basically a little smaller than a five-gallon bucket. Um, so th- those systems work well. You know, one of the things that we need to do better on the website, we're actually undergoing a complete revamp of the whole site, and it's going to be more content-driven to where we can actually consult with people and offer entry-level kits and all of that. And it's just not quite up on our site yet. But I'd, you know, I'd be happy to put together a little flood and drain system for someone, or even better, just send them the air pump mechanism to make out of their own five-gallon bucket, you know, with the net pots. So, you know, on the site, I would say the water farms, and, you know, actually hadn't even looked at, at what's on there in a while, um, but there's uh, a system called a Euro Grower that I like that is a, it's a little more expensive, um, and let's see, there's that water farm. The power grower is kind of a, a step of a larger system than a, a water farm. Uh, it's a good one as well. And then the Aeroflows, which, you know, are a bit pricey as well, but they're really efficient at producing uh, lettuce and smaller crops. Um, you know, that's a nutrient film technique, which is essentially a fancy way of saying you've got a constant film of water running by the roots. Um, but it, it I, to be honest with you, it's vinyl fence posting from a big box store, huh. and a pump, and a, a Rubbermaid. You know what I mean? And I mean that's honestly our approach is when people come in, we talk ourselves out of selling hydroponic systems. It sounds like you're good at it, you know. Like basically you're saying it works for them, it works for us, you know. So Yeah, if you're lazy and you want it fully assembled, there's a cost to put it together and a cost to ship it because it's bulky and this is how much it is and we'll do it for you. But if you want to know how to do it, we'll tell you all the stuff you can get third-party market cheap and then we'll sell you the specialized uh, materials, the knowledge, and, and the ongoing inputs to keep your system running. Bingo. That's that's the it works for other people. It works for us, and you know we shoot people straight. So yeah, that's definitely our model for sure. 
that's awesome that you guys are willing to do that because a lot of people aren't. They're like, oh, ours is special. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, it's it's a concept, not the product here. You it's, know, it's, that's, it's a post that's to remember. But you'll sell them the pump and the and what have you. And yeah, and I think the lighting is something people should really think about. From talking to you today, I believe that even more now. Um, whenever I put anything out on YouTube, uh, people always say, "Oh, you can just use LEDs," mm. uh, and they mean like Christmas LEDs. Right. And well, I'm like, I, I don't think that's probably the best. It's interesting. I mean, I think it may be important that you brought it up to flesh that out just a little bit. LEDs are relevant plant spectrums if it's calibrated for growing plants. But the problem is it's a bit like the nutrient solution, what we were talking about, is yeah. the LED technology, you choose the wavelengths involved, which is where you get the electrical savings. And what, what actually happens is a lot of these LED companies, they're huge companies that have, you know, they make parts for cars and all kinds yeah. of industrial aspects, and they caught wind of the relevance of plant growth and they open a horticultural division and put flashy ads everywhere that LEDs are the best thing in the world. And it, it unfortunately, I've seen many people make an investment and not be satisfied. Ironically, I've also seen people make an investment in, and be satisfied. And a lot of it just depends. The technology is and how the human chose the wavelength, which is yeah. a very difficult thing to, to, you know. Just so you know what I'm talking about with YouTube, uh, I call them armchair commandos. Yeah. They're talking about buying like a string of white, a string of blue, and a string of uh, uh, red yeah. LED Christmas lights, taping them to like a box top and, and hanging them over your plants. And yeah, I, that's a I'd like uh, if if you get any growth out of that, you got lucky. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I would say. That's you know I don't want to discourage you, but I need to throw the disclaimer out so you don't think I'm you know told you the wrong thing. <laughs> So um, you were mentioning, like, you guys will help people. Like, if somebody says, like, I want to do this, um, they, they're not just stuck, like, perusing your site and figuring it out. You've got folks that will talk to them or you yourself will talk to them and help them make a decision. Yeah, absolutely. I've actually talked to some people that have, have reached out from the show, and I'm, it's awesome, man. I'm, I'm really, you know, again, want to kudos for, for, you know, recruiting this group of people that you got. A lot of people paying attention, and, you know, we understand that you want to do it on a budget, and that's why we're here to help you do that. And then hopefully, as it works out for you, we can grow that into whatever you want it to be. But, yeah, absolutely. Just reach out. Our phone number is on the website, progressivegardens.com, and, you know, we'll have a quick conversation, and we'll get you where you want to go. Well, and you guys are cool because, like, right after you were on last time, you guys stepped up and uh, are supporting my support brigade, and you're doing 10% off any everything on the site. In fact, you're doing 10% off your your site Progressive Gardens and your site Progress Earth. So, yeah, correct, correct. It would be vortexbrewer.com is where you'd actually go to to purchase it. But yeah, ten percent all the way across. So that's that's significant. With some you know some people will make an investment in a six hundred dollars system. That's sixty bucks. Yeah. Um, there's your there's your uh, nutrient for a while as yeah. well. Yeah, bingo. So so thanks for doing that. And my, the reason I mainly bring that up isn't just to give you a plug. Uh, certainly deserve it with as much knowledge as you brought, but also just so if people are going to order from you that are members, they know like log in and get your discount first. Yeah. I think that a lot of members like forget that there's so much there and they don't really realize like, and I want like personally as a business person, I want you to use the discounts because then you'll stay a member and <laughs> then I can continue to have a business myself. So that's the whole name of the game, man. Spread the info. You know, that's the future of society. It's, it's not products. It's information, you know, so uh, it's, we're sitting in the right place, but yeah, I mean, even if you call reference the show and we'll provide the, the 10% over the phone, it doesn't have to be done through the website. Just engage us if you're interested and, and we'll knock it out of the park. That's very cool. So I guess for a little while anyway, even you guys that aren't MSB members, you could uh, get a discount there on the phone. Um, but, yeah, anyway, man, thanks for being here again. We're definitely going to get you back in because you have uh, a massive amount of knowledge. And uh, 
kind of a different take on, on things, uh, more of an intensive, uh, uh, growing uh, mentality, uh, and, and a lot of the life force elements that come into that. And I, I think some people got a little, like it was a little edgy for them on the first time around. But, I mean, anybody that doesn't believe that there's something to that, I think you're missing the bigger picture. There's, there's more that we don't know about why plants do what they do, why they behave the way that they do, why soil life develops the way that it does, than what we know. And, yeah. and in fact, the, 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 the ratio is probably like 2% what we know and 98% what we know that we don't know, right? <laughs> that's what we know. That, and I, I, that's like true soil scientists uh, and botanists will tell you. There's like 98% out there that we know that we don't know, and we really don't even know if it's really more like a quarter of one-tenth of a percent that we know. <laughs> right? It's just that we know we don't know 98%. I couldn't have said that better. I mean, if, if we got it all figured out, we're screwed, you know? <laughs> Let's just put it that way. I mean, I, I agree with you totally. Well, cool, man. Hey, I thank you for taking your time to be with us again today, Evan, and we'll uh, we'll look toward bringing you back on another subject. On that note, folks, peruse Evan's websites, whether you're going to you know start a hydroponic system or not. Uh, take a look at all the stuff that he does. You guys let me know. Like The next time I bring Evan back on, like, what specifically do you want to go deep into like we did today? Instead of doing the shotgun approach we did the first time today, we dug deep into uh, hydroponics. I know more about hydroponics right now than I than I have right up until you know an hour ago. Um, and, and some of it, I'm like, I'm gonna. I usually don't sit around and listen to my own show, uh, but this will be one that I'll sit around and listen to. Maybe when I'm on my way out to uh, Louisiana for the Earthworks workshop, I'll listen to it in the truck because there were some of the things you said. I just like, I kind of need to take it again because uh, it's far more scientific, I think, than most people realize. And uh, man, thanks for sharing all this knowledge with us. Oh, it's really a pleasure, man. I look forward to doing it again, Jack. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spearco today along with Evan Folds, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Yeah.